Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for university students, perhaps for one of our Thomistic Institute chapters on a university campus or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. These lectures and events are happening around the country and around the globe all the time. To learn more, visit us at www.thomisticinstitute.org and sign up for our email list. We'll keep you posted about what's happening next. And finally, please subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to like and share these recordings with your friends because it matters what you think. Wrath and love. Do the Old and New Testaments have the same God? The issue that we're addressing, the image of a harsh, wrathful God in the Old Testament, presents a challenge for those seeking to understand the biblical God, especially in a culture like ours that tends to see God as a big, celestial, smiley face. How can a big, smiley face in heaven be wrathful, unhinged, an inciter of violence, etc.? The former must give way to the latter. Even stronger is the challenge presented by the so-called new atheists who point to the Old Testament in order to disparage belief in the biblical God and as evidence that God does not exist. And they do not mince words. One notable among them, Richard Dawkins, calls God a moral monster as well as a child abuser, a malevolent bully, and a warmonger who gives commands for ethnic cleansing and bloodthirsty massacres with xenophobic relish. Further, he is petty, a control freak, and vindictive. Strong words, to be sure. I should also note that while issues with the God of wrath of the Old Testament are, in a sense, quintessentially modern, they're at the same time as ancient as the church itself. There was an ancient heresy known as Marcionism, that held that the harsh God of wrath and of strict justice of the Old Testament and the God of mercy and redeeming love and grace of the New Testament are so antithetically opposed and so irreconcilable that we're dealing with two entirely distinct gods. Marcion lived in the middle of the second century AD. He held that the God of the Old Testament or the God of Judaism was a lesser God who created the universe while the supreme God was the one that Christ made known for the first time. Finally, before uh, proceeding, I should acknowledge a very good book on this issue. Is God a Moral Monster? Making Sense of the Old Testament, by, uh, the Old Testament God by Paul Copen. This book tackles this issue exhaustively, and I'll be borrowing from it heavily. Though he's not a Catholic author, which results in minor shortcomings, in my opinion, but they're only minor. So, at the outset, and the wild charges of the new atheists notwithstanding, we must address the importance of not overplaying or exaggerating the image of the wrathful God of the Old Testament. One that distorts the God of the Old Testament as a celestial child abuser who is unhinged like a dysfunctional parent with anger issues and who is thirsty for vengeance. He's instead a God slow to anger and rich in mercy. 
a serious examination of the Bible shows that and, and leads us to say, hold on there with your distortion of the God of the Old Testament. And for Exhibit A, consider this celebrated Old Testament passage naming the divine attributes. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy and faithfulness, keeping merciful love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Exodus 20, Exodus 34, 6 to 7. This passage is by no means isolated or a one-off. It is repeated verbatim, especially the slow to anger line, 10 times throughout the entire Old Testament, like a grand structural motif spanning the arc of the Bible, guiding us in our understanding of God and of the divine attributes. Numbers 14, 18, Nehemiah 9, 17, Psalm 86, 15, Psalm 103, 8, Psalm 145, 8, Sirach 5.4, Joel 2.13, Jonah 4.2, Nahum 1.3. The Exodus passage that you see up there is especially instructive. First, it is God himself who says this of himself to Moses. It's not, say, a prophet saying it of God. Second, God says this of himself in reference to his sacred name earlier revealed to Moses. The translated passion be passage begins, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. But in the original Hebrew, it reads literally Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. This, of course, is the sacred name of God that is revealed to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3.14. In other words, these attributes get to the very core of God's being, since they're attached to his own proper name. It's a way, in other words, by which God defines himself, defines his very nature. And indeed, it is how God defines himself throughout the whole course of salvation history, throughout the whole course of the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. The Hebrew word here, hesed, which translates as mercy, underscores this. It is one of the most important words in the entire Old Testament and has a deeper, richer connotation as it signifies loving fidelity and fatherly care. It signifies divine goodness that lasts forever and it is foundational to the New Testament doctrine of grace. And Moses' reaction underscores this. Moses made haste to bow his head toward the earth and worshiped. Verse 8. What a priceless bodily way for Moses to acknowledge this, as if saying, Wow, if this is God's true nature, then I stand in awe before his greatness, mindful of my loneliness and unworthiness. As already indicated, this phrase from Exodus is repeated in three Psalms. And the Psalms, of course, play a privileged role in the liturgical and prayer life of both the people of Israel and the church. The Psalms invite us to meditate and ruminate. Thus, in this instance, to meditate and reflect on, take in the very nature of God. The principle at play here is lex orandi, lex credendi. 
The law or the way of prayer is the law or the rule of belief. The official prayer of the church, in other words, it's expressive of doctrinal belief and even helps express it. Also, the Joel passage, Joel 2.13, owns pride of place in the church's liturgical life since it's read on every Ash Wednesday. In other words, the church calls to mind this image of God as slow to anger and rich in mercy at the beginning of the most sacred time of the year, which is the season of mercy, repentance, forgiveness. And we'll be beginning that season in a couple weeks' time. This would make no sense if the God of wrath of the Old Testament were somehow opposed to the God of love and mercy of the New Testament. Thus, God of the Old Testament is rich in mercy, rich in love, rich in tenderness. Though these become the dominant hallmark features of God in the New Testament, it's not as if these hallmark features are absent from God in the Old Testament. You must be careful that in distinguishing the God of wrath of the Old Testament from the God of love of the New Testament, we not fall into the trap of separating or opposing them as the modern mind is wont to do. That marks the heretical era of Marcionism. So beware of the Marcion bait. There is profound continuity in the divine attributes between the Old and the New Testament. Indeed, it's not as if God's wrath is itself absent from the New Testament. We get 10 total references to God's wrath in St. Paul such as his warning against, quote, the wrath of God coming upon the disobedient, Ephesians 5, 6, or upon, quote, all the ungodliness and wickedness, Romans 1, 18. Short of the Marcion error, it is also to distort the biblical notion of the divine wrath, to see the God of the Old Testament as somehow undergoing like a change of heart in the New Testament, so maybe it's us who have an issue with properly understanding wrath and God than so much an issue with God himself. At the heart of what's operative in God's revelation to the people of Israel, and thus what is captured in the biblical witness, is what we could call the principle of accommodation. In short, the principle of accommodation it means that God accepts his people where they're at and doesn't give them more than they can handle or impose a moral standard that the people of Israel weren't ready for. He doesn't demand too much of them and accommodates his manner of speaking to them. Sometimes this means speaking to the ancient Israelites in ways that they can better understand and relate to, such as using anthropomorphic metaphors for God like walking in the garden, Genesis 3.8, or attributing human-like actions to God. Quote, God repented of the evil which he thought to do to his people, Exodus 32.14. These are analogous, say, to parents speaking baby talk to their babies, just as it would be a mistake to identify baby talk with the normal and proper speech of full-grown adults so would it be erroneous to affirm that the very human-like attributes of God in the Bible are somehow expressive of God's proper nature, especially when these attributes are metaphors, pure and simple. 
Sometimes the principle of accommodation means commanding the ancient Israelites to do things that, though offensive to us in the 21st century, would have been consonant with them in their ancient Near Eastern cultural milieu. C.S. Lewis warns against a chronological snobbery, whereby we retroactively apply the moral standards popular today to cultures and eras of the past, especially the ancient past. In a word, uh, God meets his people partway and moves them incrementally. He puts up with many aspects of human moral shortcoming and adjusts accordingly. Think here of Acts chapter 17, verse 30. Previously, God overlooked the times of ignorance and is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Quote. The famous example that Jesus provides of how God in the Old Testament puts up with moral shortcoming by way of temporary concession is divorce. Jesus says in Mark 10, 4, for your hardness of heart, he, Moses, wrote you this commandment permitting divorce. But from the beginning of creation, it was not so. End quote. We can extend this, uh, the divorce case to other analogous cases from the Old Testament and say, for instance, for your hardness of heart, Moses permitted servitude or warfare or polygamy, etc. But from the beginning, it was not so. This leads us to the great Pauline insight, the insight of St. Paul, an insight suggested by the trajectory of a developing morality implied in the lines from Acts 17.30, is now declaring that all people everywhere should repent. And from the beginning of creation, it was not so, Mark 10.4. The key passage comes in Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 3, verses 23 to 25. Quote, Now before faith came, we were confined under the law, kept under restraint until faith should be revealed, so that the law, the Mosaic law, was our disciplinarian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a disciplinarian. So the key term here is disciplinarian, which translates the Greek pedagogos, literally pedagogue. And in the ancient world, of course, a pedagogue was a very strict disciplinarian. St. Thomas Aquinas makes great hay of this Pauline insight, and it plays a crucial role in his moral thought. The key passage in St. Thomas comes in the Summa Theologiae, First part of the second part, question 91, article 5. He writes, Now things may be distinguished as between perfect and imperfect in the same species, for example, a boy and a man. And in this way, the divine law, that is divine moral instruction, is divided into old and new. Hence the apostle Paul compares the state of man under the old law to that of a child under a pedagogue but the state under the new law to that of a full-grown man who is no longer under a pedagogue." End quote. Likening this role of pedagogue or disciplinarian to that of a father issuing commands or house rules to his children, 
St. Thomas continues. As the father of a family issues different commands to children and to adults, so also does the one king God in his one kingdom give one law or one moral instruction to men while they were yet imperfect and another more perfect law or moral instruction when by the preceding law they had been led to a greater capacity for divine things. For St. Thomas then, God's moral instruction is issued in two installments, old and new, inasmuch as they are fitted to two organically unified stages of moral development. The first to a more child or adolescent-like stage, and the second to a proper adult-like stage. It's the same God of the Old and New Testaments who can be likened to the same Father who disciplines his young and adult children differently. Hence, St. Thomas insists in one standout passage in what amounts to a stinging anti-Marcionite statement. There is but one God of the Old and of the New Testament. You see, it is not God who's different, but man and where he finds himself in his respective stage of moral development. The two moral standards, old and new, simply accommodate this stage of moral development as going from imperfect to perfect. Thus, incremental steps are given to Old Testament Israel that tolerate certain moral deficiencies, but which encourage Israel to aim higher. God reforms his people slowly, moving them to make moral progress little by little, until at last the highest of moral standards is attained with Christ and with gospel morality. If you will, <clears throat> Old Testament morality or the old law can be likened to something like reform school and why there is developing morality within the Old Testament, whereas gospel morality can be likened to those who have emerged from reform school as, you know, reformed. And with reform school come lots of rules. In the case of the Torah, the old law, 613 total rules or laws. So if the ancient Israelites get loaded down and burdened with so many rules, it was to teach them an important lesson. It's really the most important lesson in life. That God must permeate all aspects of the lives of his people. First, the Jews then all of humanity. God, you see, isn't to be placed in the corner like a quaint hobby or a purely personal pastime as today's culture often looks upon religion. Once these laws have reformed ancient Israel and have led them to relate to God in a more adult-like manner, inasmuch as God permeates all areas of our life, not because of external legal demand, but from the internal love for God and the desire to please him, these laws can be relaxed considerably and much reduced, as parents do with their children as their children get older. So, yes, we still need the Decalogue, expressive as it is of the objective moral law that never changes, but not eating pork and bacon, not eating shrimp, getting circumcised, not so much. St. Thomas Aquinas famously divides the 613 Mosaic laws into three categories, moral, 
with the Decalogue holding pride of place, ceremonial, and juridical. Much of the latter two are done away with in the gospel. Or as St. Thomas puts it in a famous passage that addresses how the two laws, old and new, direct human action, he writes, the new law of the gospel surpasses the old Mosaic law since the new law directs our internal acts. Hence the saying by Peter Lombard that the old law curbs the hand, but the new law curbs the soul. Put in other terms, the old law induces the Israelites to, to obey by fear of punishment as children toward an adult, whereas the new law induces its observance by love as like an adult. Children refrain from taking cookies from the cookie jar through fear of punishment, but adults should refrain from this because it's wrong and because they wish to do what's right for its own sake. And as we hold children to one standard of conduct and adults to another higher standard, so Old Testament morality permits things like polygamy and divorce, whereas New Testament morality does not. Which is to say the Old Testament and the Old Law cannot be taken out of context of the whole arc of salvation history. It would be like taking the adolescent out of the arc of developing from childhood into adulthood and saying that in the adolescent, we can see what it means to be fully human. <clears throat> Even the Old Testament in its own language points towards this. The prophets, especially Jeremiah and Ezekiel, proclaimed that a new and enduring covenant was coming, one where God's moral standard should be written on the human heart. Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers, when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Ezekiel 36, a new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will take out your flesh, uh, I will take out of your flesh the heart of stone, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. You shall dwell in the land which I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God." End quote. By the Old Testament's own admission, the moral standard of ancient Israel was inferior and future-directed. The Old Testament itself acknowledges that the Law of Moses was a temporary measure that was less than ideal and in need of fulfillment. Following St. Thomas, we can sum it up this way. Whereas imperfection is defining of Old Testament morality, perfection is defining of New Testament morality, no longer under a pedagogue from St. Paul. St. Thomas is clear that if perfection is what is defining of gospel morality, 
It's on account of the person of Christ himself and the grace of the Holy Spirit which he gives. For Aquinas, gospel morality consists primarily in the grace of the Holy Spirit itself. It is the person of Christ and the grace of the Holy Spirit that he gives that makes moral perfection possible. Indeed, it makes participation in the very holiness of God possible. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, says Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 48. Our relationship with the person of Christ, animated by the grace of the Holy Spirit, implies a transformation of our moral comportment in a way that suits the moral maturity of a reformed person, reformed by grace, who acts, quote, no longer under a pedagogue. St. Thomas offers another key insight relative to how the Old and New Testaments relate and how thus we can see that there is but one God of the New and of the Old Testament. And it's closely related to the imperfect, perfect distinction. It's the distinction between the physical or earthly and the spiritual or heavenly, eternal. And more importantly, how the two parallel each other so that the former, the physical or the earthly, anticipates, sets the stage for, prefigures, represents the latter, the spiritual, the heavenly, the eternal. He writes, This good, to which God's law orders us, may be twofold. First, it may be a physical and earthly good, and to this man was direct, directly ordained by the old law. Thus, at the very outset of the law, the people were invited to the earthly kingdom of the Canaanites. Second, it may be a spiritual and heavenly good, and to this man is ordained by the new law. Thus, at the very beginning of his preaching, Christ invited men to the kingdom of heaven, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4, 17. Hence, Augustine says that promises of temporal goods are contained in the Old Testament, for which reason it is called old, but the promise of eternal life belongs to the New Testament. End quote. In this respect, the two Testaments taken together act like the sacraments, in which a physical sign, water, bread, wine, oil, words, points to a deeper spiritual encounter with the person of Christ. So what St. Thomas offers us is a sacramental read on the way the two testaments and the two laws relate to each other. So applying this to the numerous dietary and ritual cleansing laws concerning clean and unclean, purity and impurity of the law of Moses, what they signify and point toward is a much deeper spiritual truth. Unless we are morally clean and spiritually pure, we risk spiritual death. Uncleanness symbolizes loss of life, ultimately the life of the soul. Israel's washing and eating habits were loaded with profound theological significance, in other words. These dietary and ritual cleansing laws stand for Israel's call to live 
holy lives in everything. We lose the real significance and import of these laws concerning clean and unclean if we then get hung up on what they mean on a purely physical level. Think of how the sacrament of baptism, the physical bath, signifies deeper spiritual cleansing. And we would miss out on the real significance and import of baptism if we see it as nothing more than a physical bath. As for ancient Israel's enemies, like the Egyptians, the Philistines, or the Amalekites, whom God commands to be put to the sword, down to the last woman and child, which leads some of the new atheists to declare that the biblical God is a genocidal warmonger, these enemies stand for the powers of darkness, the powers of sin, hatred, envy, that is anything that stands opposed to God, and thus opposition to God's determination to set things right, to set things back in proper order, and to put asunder sin and death. At bottom, then, the wars between Israel and its enemies signify that the spiritual life is a battle. <clears throat> First, a battle within, against one's own sinful tendencies and disordered attachments. And second, a battle without, against the hostility that you're guaranteed to face if you're committed to the gospel. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you, Jesus says in John 15, 20. Just consider what kind of hostile reaction you'll encounter if you make it clear you stand with the church on, say, the definition of marriage, to just choose one simple but obvious example. <clears throat> on a deeper level, these, holy, these Old Testament holy wars thus signify the clash of two world orders, the world of sin and disorder versus the world of living in right accord with God and of being ordered to or back online with God. The God of Israel is a warrior who opposes all that distorts the true image of God and all that mars the divine image in human beings, all that threatens true human flourishing. <clears throat> so when we read, for instance, in Exodus 17:8, in those days Amalek came and waged war against Israel, we should read this ultimately to mean in those days, the enemies of God came and waged war against the friends of God. Or, in those days, the wicked and evil came and assaulted the virtuous and the holy. Or, in those days, the devil came and assaulted God's holy people. Likewise, when we read further in verse 13, And Joshua mowed down Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. We should read this ultimately to mean, and God's holy people overcame God's enemies with the help of the Lord. Or, and God's holy people vanquished Satan and all the wicked with the strength of the Lord. Or even, and God's holy people vanquished their own sinful tendencies through the grace of God. This is how Origen, the ancient church father, understood Israel's wars with the Amalekites and its other enemies. Even the Old Testament text itself suggests all this. As God's judgments fall on those practicing evil and wickedness, 
And this includes the Israelites themselves, as St. Paul makes clear in Romans 1 to 3. God's concern is with sin. It's not with ethnicity. Thus, the issue with the Canaanites was their false and immoral idolatry. Exhibit A, child sacrifice to the god Molech. Exhibit B, ritualistic orgies, whereby they believed that the more sex they had in their sacred places, the more this would stimulate the fertility god Baal to have sex with his consort Anna in order to have semen, that is rain, fertilize the earth. So the real problem wasn't the Canaanites themselves, but their idolatrous way of life. As for the Amalekites, they were so bent on destroying Israel that if they had had their way, Israel would have been wiped off the map. And consider the role that Israel would play in the salvation of the world. We can see, if we consider that, then the spiritual peril the world would have been placed in had Israel been wiped out. Note, too, how the further we go in the arc of salvation history and the closer we get to the New Testament, the closer Israel gets to its spiritual redemption. The more the Old Testament adjacently leaves behind the physical call to battle against its political enemies. God's call to physical battle was not enduring. Instead, it was confined to a unique and particular moment in Israel's history. Relatedly, God's seemingly heavy-handed punishment of first-time moral offenses, like Onan getting killed by God for committing a primitive form of contraception in Genesis 38, verses 9 to 10, this shows that God is not to be trifled with, that he takes sin seriously. He will not tolerate sin and is determined to wipe it out, and is setting a precedent and sending a message in the way he deals with first-time offenses. This is how to read God's wrath, namely as God's absolute intolerance for moral evil and disorder. One last point on the warrior God of the Old Testament. When the biblical text speaks, especially in Joshua, of wholesale slaughter, and total occupation by Israel. This is not to be understood literally. It was common practice in the ancient Near East to use stock expressions full of bravado in order to exaggerate one's uh, military exploits, emphasizing total devastation. Every Near Eastern reader knew that this was hyperbole, and no one took it literally. Just as no one takes it literally today when their favorite sports team wins and they say their team, their team blew away their opponents. For all the objections raised against the God of the Old Testament, let's zoom out for a moment and consider the bigger picture against the backdrop of ancient and even modern religious worldviews and appreciate how the God of the Old Testament stands out in sharp relief as a much more advanced, theologically speaking, relative to the other ancient cultures and religions. So, for instance, the Old Testament reveals and introduces in the ancient world a robust monotheism. The God of Israel is the only God who exists. 
I am God and there is no other, Isaiah 45. And God is king of all the earth, Psalm 47. Also, the God of the Bible is the ground, the source of all being. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Isaiah 37, 16. The Old Testament reveals and introduces a God who is supreme, intelligent, wise, the almighty sovereign of the universe, and thus the ground, the source of all morality, and thus of all civilization. The Old Testament reveals and introduces the idea that history is going somewhere, that it has a point, and thus that history is not merely cyclical, you know, same old, same old, as one finds among the Mesopotamians, the Egyptians, or even in Eastern philosophies and religions with the doctrine of karma and reincarnation. The Old Testament reveals and introduces a God who has a global cosmic providential plan and who involves and engages humans as history-shaping participants, both for good and for ill, in that plan. Which is why, say, today, we in the United States in the year 2023 worship the God of the ancient Israelites. No one still worships the God of the ancient Romans or the gods of the ancient Greeks, for instance, or the Egyptians, etc. For the Old Testament, we human beings are not pawns of fate. We're not at the mercy of the whims of the gods such as we find in Homer or Sophocles or Virgil. Nor can human choice outdo God or frustrate his providential purposes. I should add that if Homer, Sophocles, and Virgil see human beings as pawns of fate and as subject to the whims of the gods, they do leave room for human choice or free will, though they have no clear idea how human choice is reconciled with fate and the will of the gods. And while human agents might be enlisted to carry out the will of the gods or even fate, seen most evidently in the case of Virgil's Aeneas, this is not in the least comparable to human choice being woven into God's providential plan. There is no divine providence that is no supremely wise and intelligible ordering of human history to a higher end in ancient authors like Homer or Virgil. Fate is a far cry from divine providence. Indeed, it is on account of the biblical revelation that the very questions that are invoked to call God's existence into question are even raised in the first place. Why does a loving, merciful God permit evil, we ask? Yet this question is predicated on and only makes sense if God is understood to be moral and holy. And only the biblical God is moral, loving, and holy. You will not find Mesopotamian gods or Greek gods or Roman gods who are moral and holy, or even stronger, are the embodiment, let alone the source of morality and holiness. 
For the other ancients, it's, it is nonsensical to think that evil rules out God's existence or even that God is moral. The gods of the ancients aren't moral. They're petty, self-centered, mischievous, fickle, capricious, impulsive, temperamental, mercurial, petulant, and the list goes on. Indeed, they're the root cause of evil in the world in the first place. Whereas Genesis makes clear it's human rebellion, not God, that is the root cause of evil in the world. Our theologically sophisticated moral notion of God is the direct fruit of the biblical witness, not, say, of Enlightenment ideals. Objections against God are historically founded on the very biblical witness that these objections turn on. Criticisms, criticisms of the Christian religion and of the biblical God are themselves biblically sourced, biblically inspired, biblically framed, biblically dependent. It should also be said that with respect to human nature and the dignity of the human person, relative to all the ancient cultures, Mesopotamian, Egyptian, Greek, Roman, and all Near Eastern cultures, the Old Testament stands out for the value it assigns to human life. Human life in the Bible is an intrinsic good and dignity is inherent to the human person. See, for instance, Psalm 138. You see it there on the screen. You formed my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in that secret place. All of the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And of course, Genesis 1, 26 to 27, where man, male, and female, is declared to be made in the very image of God. That is, every human being, male, female, free person, slave, Hebrew, Gentile, all are in the image of God. In other Near Eastern cultures, it was only the king who was the image of their particular God on earth. Related to all this, and which must be pointed out, is that even in those cases where God puts up with the moral shortcomings of the ancient Israelites in the Old Testament, what he puts up with and demands marked dramatic moral improvements relative to the practices of the other ancient Near Eastern peoples. Put more strongly, some of the harsh and seemingly arbitrary Old Testament laws, though less than morally optimal, yet are often a striking improvement on what we see in the rest of the ancient Near East. They are a remarkable, previously unheard of legal and moral advance, such as laws concerning sexual morality, laws permitting divorce and polygamy notwithstanding. One of today's leading New Testament scholars, N.T. Wright, identifies sexual morality as, quote, one of the major differences between Jewish and pagan lifestyles, unquote as the moral standard for sex was far more rigorous in ancient Israel than among its ancient Near Eastern neighbors. Genesis 2.25, they were naked and not ashamed. And Genesis 3.7, they knew that they were naked and sewed fig leaves together, make clear that sin 
corrupts human sexuality in a particular way. The first century Jewish historian Josephus notes how the Jews of his day had been, quote, set apart from the unnatural sexual practices that were otherwise prevalent among the pagan Gentiles. Another example of this higher moral standard relative to ancient Near Eastern peoples is how the ancient Israelites treated their enemies captured in battle. We find Israel hardly approaching the brutal and ruthless practices of its Near Eastern neighbors. For instance, the Assyrians flayed live victims. They impaled others on poles and they heaped up bodies for show. One Assyrian king bragged about gouging out the eyes of his enemy soldiers and cutting off their ears and limbs, followed by displaying their heads all around a city. And dare I mention the penalty of crucifixion devised and commonly used by the Romans? Thank you for your attention. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.